Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a Miracle Made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver-infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not like getting too hot or too cold or whatever, you know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle Made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it like doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made. Come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today, you'll get 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. This is a HeadGum Podcast. Fake the Nation, episode 378. Hello, hello. This is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about culture, and where we marvel at the fact that candy corn is the eighth most popular candy in America today. I'm your host, Nagin Farsad, and I find that placement really shocking. Uh, by the way, the most popular is Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, the second in line is M&M's, and the third, another shocker, is Hot Tamales. Hot tamales. That has a hold over the American consumer. I truly had no idea. Today, we will talk about um, not that, but instead, uh, OnlyFans and teachers. Yeah, those two things in one sentence. Uh, we will also talk about the tragic war. And finally, we'll ask if the 21st century is the least innovative artistic century. And folks, today is a very, very special episode of Fake the Nation because we have just one panelist and she's so incredible that she can actually fill in for like five panelists in at once that's first of all this woman was like I said, how should I introduce you? And she said one of her roles, but she has so many roles. She is a journalist. She is, uh, she would, she taught, she, she teaches a journalism course. Um, she's, uh, she's just like a phenomenal writer. I mean, I have her book literally at home in my bookcase, prominently displayed, um, you know, and, and more than anything right now, she is a political communications consultant, um, and man, and you'll see, by the way, she knows how to like talk about these issues, why that is. She is the wonderful Sally Cohn. Hey, Sally. Gosh, did you feel like you needed to give me an introduction for two people? <laughs> no, just you are the kind of person that I feel like requires an introduction for two people because that's how great you are. That's what. I feel like this is a little dangerous because people might find out how much we love each other and we might forget that people are going to listen to our conversation. I know, right, right, right. Like this is actually being, uh, will be broadcast to lots of people. It's not just us in the room. We will forget. Um, but my first question before we get into the show is like, did you think A, that, that candy corn was the eighth most popular candy or that hot tamales was the third most popular candy? Was that surprising to you at all? You know, yes, until you realized that Donald Trump was the second most popular <laughs> presidential choice. 
So I, I just think, I think I'm really out of touch with right. a good third of the country. Yeah. And I'm assuming... <laughs> Now, here's the thing. I also am going to say, I think a lot of people are probably buying candy corn and not eating it. You know what I mean? Like you put it in a decorative bowl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You I know, can see for that a month happening. or so. But I don't know if you eat it. Although I'm going to be honest, I don't hate the stuff. It just oh, wouldn't I, rank anywhere I near like, my top 10. I actually love it, but I can only have, I can do like five a day for like a week. <laughs> and then I have to take a month off, I think is like what it is. <laughs> but now Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Unless any, if Those the, people, are year the round. nice people from Reese's are listening, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, know. No, I, I, there, I, I there, don't if, need. If, yeah. you, if you want to unload your product on a podcast, Fake the Nation is here for you, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, <laughs> forever and always. Like, that is a tremendous candy. But I also just want to say, hot tamales, like, what the fuck? I mean, no offense to whoever <laughs> invented hot tamales. Like, you're, I'm sure you're, like, a really nice person and have a lot of great ideas or whatever. Like, I don't get that. At number three, I don't get it. I don't get it. I am going to just begrudgingly tolerate that statistic. For, for whatever it's worth. And people of Fake Nation, come at me if you feel like super offended by that. I, I guess we all tend to see things through our own lens, so <laughs> guilty. But like, where the hell are the Skittles? Skittles or at least Starburst? What happened to Lifesavers? Like there's a whole oh, bunch of things like I would have so bet money. I would have bet money ended up above. Yeah, because mom. the other thing was like Hershey's Kisses were on there, but so were Hershey's little snack little mini bars, which is the same product at the end of the day. And so I'm like, how are they even getting separate items on a 10 item list? You know, so the overrepresented. And yeah, I don't I don't I don't know. It's look, we have a lot to do. We have a lot to do in figuring out the American public. Before we get into the show, I want to just remind listeners that talking about American public, we are doing um recap episodes of The Golden Bachelor. Every fr- every other Friday, those are dropping. Um, you can see that show on Hulu slash ABC. It airs on Thursday nights. Uh, man, we had a really great time talking about that for the first couple of episodes. There is a handsome, nerdly man at the center of it all. He is The Golden Bachelor. Um, Gary, I mean, there's a lo- so much to say about him. He cries a lot. I don't know. I mean, getting texts from friends and DMs from listeners about like I can't believe you're making me watch The Golden Bachelor but I am and I'm riveted and I'm crying a lot and I and so did I okay I cannot wait for this week's episode I cannot wait to recap um, so tune in um, to Fake the Nation we'll drop in your feed every other Friday uh, for as long as The Golden Bachelor is on and don't forget to go to patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad to subscribe to the show for bonus episodes that's uh, patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad and thanks to everyone who already subscribes and now let us Let's get into it with topic number one. So a 28-year-old English teacher in Missouri was put on leave on a leave of absence after someone had discovered her OnlyFans page. She was earning $42,000 on that side gig and has since resigned from teaching to pursue um, her pornography career. So my first question for you is, what do you think of a teacher having an OnlyFans account? Is it a conflict of interest? Is it inappropriate? Um yeah, just what do you, what, at first blush, what do you think? Um, well, I am blushing with this conversation, <laughs> so good tea up, Farsad. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I'm against it. Uh, I mean, look, uh, I, of course, I empathize with the fact that we pay teachers ridiculous, yeah. ridiculously low, low in this country yeah. for what they have to do. And it was a hard job before the pandemic. It got unimaginably hard during the pandemic, pivoting to remote learning, then hybrid, then all of that. And now, frankly, it is an untenable job because a small authoritarian faction of parents have decided that they should have more power, not only over their own children's education, but over all children's education than professional, experienced, uh, knowledgeable teachers and are making teachers' lives hell. So I get wanting an outlet that pays you money and all of that. Totally sympathize. And at the same time, probably just a super bad idea, right? Like, and I, you know, um, what if she uh, was like like, working at a Hooters? (laughs) Just what I was thinking, like, okay, what if, you know, and again, like, I don't want to, this isn't about obviously shaming 
No, I mean, I don't care. how women are money or whatever. I guess what I'm aware of, so look, my context is, right, I now live in um, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is one of those uh, purple rural-ish counties where that small authoritarian faction has taken over the school board and set about banning books and banning pride flags and attacking teachers as like, you know, trying to uh, turn kids gay and oversexual, whatever. And like, yeah. it's utter, total, complete bullshit. Yeah, parents need to support their kids, but thank God there are teachers who can support, educate uh, kids when their parents aren't or don't, right? Including kids who are lesbian, gay, bi, or trans. And um, into that melee, stuff like this is extremely uh unhelpful right teachers who are sort of like um uh uh yeah it's just it's i'm uh, yeah and uh, you know what this is where i'm a little bit of a prude and i'm comfortable with that so yeah okay i know what do you think i mean it's funny because in the abstract i think like uh it in the abstract i think it should be okay like if it you know if she like i guess if she had a job at hooters like I don't know what I would, I would also be like, uh, it's in, it's contained, right? Uh, <laughs> the boobs are contained in one room, you know what I mean? Um, but so that I think would sort of like be okay. Um, I think like the amount that, the, again, and and I just want to like 500% echo what you said. I don't care if someone is on OnlyFans. Like I, I know yeah. people that are on, on OnlyFans. It's fine. I don't, I really don't care. Um, what I think is, um, it's just like the children thing is, it is weird. I think if, I, I got to be honest. I'm so on the fence on this one. I could see both sides. If I if my kid had a teacher that was on OnlyFans, I'm like, you know, she's four. How she's never gonna see it. It's not like she's gonna be exposed to it. I guess with yeah, that's high, a problem. That's a high school teacher. It's the high. So. She's a high school teacher. That is, I think, the the pro- part of the problem is that those kids are now online. They might see that stuff, whatever. And then you just don't want to kind of like have a, an image of your teacher that is disruptive to the classroom. That I think is about, again, if it, like oddly, if she was teaching preschool, I'd be like, guys, give her a break. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. I think I feel, I'm, I'm listening to you and I think we might both be trying to tie ourselves in knots to be like, well, it's not a bad choice in the abstract. It's just maybe a bad choice for a teacher. And that's, I think that's okay, right? right. Like, I don't want to say just, maybe this is another way of coming at it. Just because you have again, this sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of far right power hungry group that is hell bent on trying to moralize schools and teachers and like kids should be this and not that. And like, you know, ostensibly obliterate anything that is queer in schools. And right, just cause you have that faction that is a very intensely moralistic faction doesn't mean there shouldn't be frankly moral standards that apply to teachers. Right. and. I think this one, you know, are, are there others that we could debate, uh, you know, does that cross the line or not or whatever, but this one feels pretty much like it crosses the line to me. And again, in that debate where so we're having such a politicized debate about yeah. ostensibly um, this sort of faux morality as a way to actually undermine teachers, undermine teachers unions, undermine public schools, et cetera. It just kind of makes me sad in that yeah. moment. While again, at the same time, it's like root cause. If teachers were getting paid what they were what they were worth, no one would be doing stuff like this. You know, I think hearing you talk about it has really like clarified my feelings. My feelings are thusly. Um, I wish that we ta- we treated teachers. You know, there's places like if you go to Iran or if you go to Czechoslovakia or whatever. There's like par- there's parts of the world where teacher where being a teacher is such an elevated position. It's like. It's like doctor, teacher, you know what I mean? It's like that people talk about them like that. Now, I wish we had that in the United States, that feeling. I personally have that feeling, and I know a lot of people that have that feeling that do elevate teachers in that way, but just like writ large, we don't because we don't pay them enough. Like uh, the way that we pay them is not does not indicative of putting them on a pedestal. I would like to put teachers on a pedestal. Now, in a world where teachers are on a pedestal, unfortunately, that also means they're on a sort of ethical pedestal. They're on a moral pedestal. They're like, they're exemplars as as 
when it comes to, you know, the citizenry. And so in that sense, you want them to like I would also be un- maybe probably uncomfortable with like a teacher who also like owns, I don't know, like a cigar shop or something like that. You know what I mean? It's just like what they do. Definitely what- a vape shop. Definitely yes, a vape yes, shop. Yes, I'd be yeah, like, yeah. Oh my right. god, no. Right? No thanks. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Vape shop. And so those are the kinds of things that like you, you know, be- because we pay teachers so much, we also expect them to uphold some sort of a standard of what a person should be. And but and but but we we don't do that. So there's part of it that's missing, mm-hmm. which is why I'm more sympathetic in this situation. But I think in an ideally she would not have an OnlyFans page. I also want to point out that um, last week in Minneapolis, um, there was a 35-year-old officer who could now lose her job um, because she was uh, she pulled someone over and that person recognized her from her OnlyFans page. Um, and she this is like a decorated officer who's actually been recognized by the, the Minneapolis Police Department for her police work. So um, again, police officers another different can of like what kind of person do they represent you know there are these these people that you're that are supposed you know upholding the law again not that only fans is against it's not but just that like what do we want from these people how do we want them to like be um as you know as citizens with that job these are kind of special jobs i think the same of like Mm -hmm. i don't know i do think the same of doctors politicians i think the same politicians politicians. i think the same of doctors right like you were you know the the that is the burden and the benefit of those yeah. kinds of roles is you are right. called to a form of community leadership and a higher moral ethical standard and that you know is i think again i think it is entirely uh entirely fair all right folks okay. let me know wow we made it through that one we made it through yeah. that one um i'm so curious I'm what do you think i feel like this I, this is like my favorite kind of discussion because it is an ethical conundrum it's difficult and i'm so curious to know where you folks land on it um so hit me up and we're going to take a quick break to learn about our sponsors and when we're back we're going to continue chatting this HeadGum Podcast is brought to you by AuraFrames. That is right. Uh, from grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, even the friends of your life, every mom loves an AuraFrame. Holy shit, even aunts? Yes, especially aunts. Oh, well. Because it was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I mean, these AuraFrames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. I believe it. You have an AuraFrame, don't you? Yes, I actually more than believe it. I know it. Uh, I've got one for my mom, my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law. And dare I say your aunt? And dare you say my aunt and my aunt-in-law. Everyone's got one. Everyone loves them. I mean, Mother's Day is right around the corner, and there's no better gift than a digital photo frame. You give them the frame. It's got preloaded pictures in there, and you know what? You can update it with an app, so every time you take a new picture of a sweet little uh, person or place or thing in your life, it gets automatically sent to that frame. Exactly. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. Holy smokes. Excellent deal. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A frames.com. You use the code HEADGUM at checkout to save. HEADGUM. Nice. Yes. Headgum. It's easy to set up. It's loved by everybody, including Oprah, including your aunt. Mm-hmm. So do check them out. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code HEADGUM at checkout to save. Damn right. And terms and conditions apply, of course. Of course. Thanks again to Aura. Today's show is sponsored by Pros. This is kind of, I feel like, you know, I'm on some sort of Lord of the Rings journey trying to figure out skincare. And I feel like this customized skincare line is really got my name on it. Basically, every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skincare, I tried the skincare just recently, is made to order and it's personalized. It's got a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs, like specifically you. And then the way they do it is you take this great, like in-depth quiz, basically. They analyze over 80 factors for a complete view of your life, your beauty goals, Um, Like I have oily skin that's also dry, which is just a fun 
little conundrum. I live in New York City. Like we've got these four seasons. My my face gets weird during seasonal shifts. Um, I all of these things I got to kind of talk about in like in answering the questions. Um, the other fun thing was they asked us at the end, like, do you like a creamy type of moisturizer or like a less creamy kind? And I was kind of like, mm, I think like less creamy. And they were like, that's fine. Like you can do that, but we think for your skin type, creamier is better. And I never knew that. So I love that there's so much kind of personal information that goes into creating this. I got my stuff in the mail very quickly after I got a wonderful serum. Like I said, this very creamy moisturizer. Um, and this also very just delectably creamy cleanser that just kind of feel like I, I think it's possible that I've been washing my face with just like harsh harshness. <laughs> for like many years, because when I saw this cleanser, I was like, oh, is this what it's supposed to feel like? It's supposed to feel like a little bit of a delight on my face. That's not what I've been doing. So I don't know, guys. And here's the thing, you don't have to take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, um, which is like the gold standard for research studies, pros prove that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives, which just sort of totally makes sense on a just logical level. If you think about it, just it makes common sense. Pros are so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering my listeners an exclusive trial offer so you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% of your first subscription order at pros.com slash fake the nation um, will be taken off. That's Pros.com slash fake the nation. You get your free consultation and 50% off your one of a kind formulas. Uh, again, that's pros.com slash fake the nation. Go and get your just super personalized, luxurious skincare products and hair care products. That's what I'm going to try next. So pros.com slash fake the nation. And we are back and we're ready for topic number two. Now, as you've noticed by now, uh, we still only have one panelist on the show. Part of the reason we don't have a second panelist, I think, is because <laughs> this topic, um, as everyone has heard by now, uh, and I don't even know how to, talk, I just want to say from the start, I don't know how to talk about this. And I felt like we had to mention it. So, and I don't feel particularly qualified to talk about it. Uh, and um, there you go. So all of those things are true. Here we go. But as you've heard by now, Hamas, a Palestinian militant group that controls the Gaza Strip, launched a surprise attack on Israel, entering areas near the Gaza Strip, killing hundreds and taking dozens of hostages. It was really brutal. Um a brutal, brutal display of force. In response, Israel bombarded uh, downtown Gaza City. This is now a war. Uh, Hamas has been widely condemned, although we could talk about how widely. And um, and again, just for a bit of context in, ca context in case listeners don't know, um, the Gaza Strip has over 2 million residents. It's one of the most densely populated areas of the world, and all the points of entry are heavily controlled by Israel. So considering the large-scale surveillance, um, this is also being viewed as a massive intelligence failure failure for Israel. Um, and simultaneously, you know, there are questions that have arisen about the conditions in the G Gaza Strip to begin with. It's a thorny issue. But one thing that everyone can agree on is that the loss of life is extremely, uh, extremely fucking sad. Um, so, Sally, um, what what do you what do you make of this conflict? Is it as difficult for you to talk, talk about it as it is for me? It is. Um, well, it is for several reasons, right? First and foremost, the, the sheer brutality of what's happening. And, and, you know, yes, brutal things are always happening at all times all around the world when they happen in rapid succession. Um, was such frankly just extreme dehumanizing violence mm -hmm. uh, brutality to like uh, families to families to, and and I'm right and then like to families to children um you know stories of uh Hamas killing 
people right in front of their children, kidnapping children, um, uh, you know, raping and torturing people. It, it's, um, it is, imp I think, I hope it is impossible to feel comfortable talking about it because it's just wrenching. Um, I also think that it is hard to talk about. So that's just like, that is, for me, 80% yeah. of why this is hard to talk about. The rest is some mix of, you know, historically, this is a complicated issue to wade into. And it's complicated because I feel like, you know, as, as an American, as an American Jew, I know you know, a thimble full. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I don't know what I don't know. And I know my knowledge and experience and ideas have been shaped by a lot of um, what I've been exposed to, but also what I've been not exposed to, what I haven't known. And it's just a issue that it feels like it's just, there's a lot of landmines. I don't want to step in the landmines. And at the same time, I want to very clearly stand for peace, not just in this moment, but in the past and going forward, right? A peaceful resolution, a peaceful future for Israelis, for Palestinians, for Muslims, for Jews, that um, recognizes the full and equal humanity of all of the above and a solution that allows everyone to live in freedom. And... I think one of the heartbreaking things about this moment is it feels like that goal is getting further away, mm, not closer. Mm. And that every time, um, I, I feel like it's very fraught to talk about that history, that context, yeah. um, histories of violence and injustice and not just this moment. Um, and I don't want to, when I do that in any way, shape or form, minimize the extreme atrocity and severity of what is happening in this moment. Yeah, beautifully said, Sally. Um, I would say, uh, on a like on a, on the note of diplomacy, um, and and you know the idea of peace for the region. You know, I I did this um, this this show for the this the show called The Reason We're All Still Here. It's another podcast, and we talked about the Iran nuclear deal on that show. And, you know, the, the Iran nuclear deal when Trump took over was like um, ended and for the, the American involvement was ended. And then uh, and, you know, and now it's uh, the, the status is just kind of like unclear and weak and whatever. But like my feeling about deals like that is that the idea is to bring these kind of these countries that are largely considered rogue or unstable or you know or um, or or headed by authoritarians to bring them in the fold and kind of help them get on board with international diplomacy the global economy and like let's try and change things for those countries economically and then hopefully the politics will follow you know um and the you know uh, us kind of like pushing countries like that out of the conversation i think makes the goal of a of peace in the in that region much harder mm -hmm. um and so you know we can thank people like trump for making for for making um that goal a little further away uh mm -hmm. but with actions like you know getting rid of the jcpoa the iran nuclear deal so uh yeah i think and i also think like i don't i mean you know the gaza strip elected hamas in 2007 like i don't understand i don't understand <laughs> that <laughs> you know what i mean um and mm -hmm. um you know it's like it's uh it's also i you know just i i didn't know i i just started reading some things um about the gaza strip and about uh 80 of the population depends on international aid and one million people per a day rely on food aid international food mm -hmm. aid so it's like a really economically depressed place mm -hmm. um and so uh 
I'm not sure what has happens and what's got to happen, but that doesn't sound those numbers don't sound right. Also, um, in terms of like how two million people have been living, um, mm-hmm. and again, and the brutality is extremely wrong, and all of those things are true. I, I also don't understand how Israelis reinstalled Netanyahu and an authoritarian right in Israel. And I feel like, um, you know, look, I, I I grew up in an era uh, in Judaism writ large where you just kind of, you know, your, um, uh, oof, watch out for these landmines, Cone. These, um, <laughs> the, the, the unquestioning support for mm-hmm. Israel was mm-hmm. considered part and parcel with Judaism and even liberal Jewish traditions. And, mm-hmm. and I think that has shifted in a lot of ways, in constructive ways, where you hear more, uh, you know, as there have always been, by the way, Israelis who've been critical of, um, uh, the Israeli relationship and, and actions in Palestinian territories, um, more and more American Jews um, who are critical of that, because you have to bear in mind the reason that Israel is able to do what it does is because it is propped up and its military is supported by um, uh, much larger, more powerful nations, namely the United States. And um, and so that had changed. And, uh, you know, and I can see that any sense of progress or potential peace um, frankly eroded over the last you know six plus years uh, both with Trump and with Netanyahu and with a sense of you know might is right and you know there should be winners and losers and regions and so forth and that this should you know and and um, so I think part of why I feel so bereft right now is not just obviously at the incredible uh, dramatic loss of life and and suffering um but it also feels like this will be a setback and i don't um you know look i i don't know that many people but i know more palestinians uh you know i don't know any palestinians actually who support hamas um yeah uh, so i i don't yeah Um, me neither and, uh, you know, by the way, I also know a number of Israelis and I don't know many Israelis uh, and I, I know very few American Jews to support settlements and sort of, you know, would have been ruled to be uh, by international tribunals, illegal incursions into Palestinian land. So and yet here we are and it's. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just my heart breaks. And also my heart breaks. And also I feel like there's this pressure to say something or to think something, yeah. or, you know, and I, who the fuck cares what I think, you know? Um, and at the same time, I also know that what me and my brethren, you know, that, that we create the container for what is possible and what is accepted. And I guess what I think is killing is wrong. Yeah. And oppression is wrong. And occupation is wrong. And violence is wrong. And I am worried it is just going to get worse now. And I, that, my heart breaks. Yeah. And I also think it's like also especially interesting when you you look at the history of diplomacy, I feel like I came of age, like I was an adolescent or something when Clinton and the handshake and all that stuff. Um, And so it felt like a more hopeful time and it sort of felt like it would only get better from there. And then it did not get better from there. Um, And uh, that's, I think, also just like, it's just so sad and disappointing because you, in the sliding doors version of this, you, you, you can see like a different outcome um, on a, on a day like today. Um, folks, as you can see, Sally and I also, I think that's great. Like we don't, it's okay not to like have a specific, you know, boiled down to a few bullet points, you know, feelings about this. It's like, it's just so sad and, um, and horrible. And I think you're right. I'm against um, killing and I'm against oppression of all kinds. That's like the number one thing. 
Uh, folks, let me know. What do you think? It's, uh, well, it's a terrible time. So let us move on to our final topic. We read a piece in the New York Times. This is just a huge palate cleanser, folks. We read a piece by Jason Frago called Ours is the Least Artistically Innovative Century in 500 Years. But baby, it's not as bad as it sounds. On the front of the end of the piece, he lays out what art was or tried to be. He writes, quote, to speak to your time, we once believed we required much more than new content. It required a commitment to new modes of narration, new styles of expression that could bear witness to see changes in society. He pointed out that in the 1800s, quote, the creators who mostly decisively marked the history of art again and again described their work as a search for a new language, a new style, a new way of being. And he used Manet as an example. It's all very convincing. But my question for you, Sally, is do you agree with him that we no longer do that in the 21st century? Like, we no longer look for new modes of of um, of language making um, and communication. Are, are we, in fact, the least artistically innovative century? Well, first of all, like, the century isn't over yet, <laughs> motherfucker. What the hell? <laughs> am, am I wrong? Like, I can't do math really well, but, like, we've got a ways to go. So, fuck you. We're so and second far, of all, but, I mean, this quarter of whatever, a century does not whatever, feel... Whatever. And second, we're dealing with a lot of shit. Ibid, the previous conversation. So, I mean, <laughs> right... Also, the planet is dying. We had a pandemic. Like, a lot's going on. Uh, And, and, okay, so putting that aside for a second, I feel like, give me a break. Also, I found that piece to be, frankly, um, uh, chokingly (laughs) elitist. Chokingly elitist. (laughs) Like, so just so we're clear, folks, and by the way, there were, like, parts of it I was like, well, I don't understand that paragraph, so I'm fucking skipping that paragraph, but... There were. It was a. It was a lot. It was very densely yeah. written. Obviously, I needed a palate cleanser. Thank you, Nagin. Um, uh, except that I'm still like I'm like holding back tears. I'm like, but I want to cry now because we were talking. Okay, so emotional roller coaster. Yeah, this Jesus, episode, man. Jesus. All right. Yeah. Who decides what culture is? I mean, this is the thing, right? Like, and I will say, I don't know enough to know a lot, but I'm on your damn show, so I'm going to pretend like I do. And I will say that some of the <laughs> stuff that we think of as like fancy fucking culture now from 200 years ago or 300 years ago, whatever, was like garbage trash then. So I right. don't know, you know, do I think um, in, uh, you know, three centuries, people will still be talking about Doja Cat? God, <laughs> I hope not. But like, are people doing interesting things around micro communication on TikTok and finding new innovative forms of kind of public performative art? And, you know, right? Like, yeah. Do I get it? No. Is it possible to recognize true ground shifting stuff in when it's actually happening? I don't think it is. Um, So, yeah, but I found that piece sort of like just yeah dripping with snooty elitism and like you know well nothing made today is as fancy as as elitist to pass like okay well okay okay but i will push back because you're an elitist, you, go ahead. Because I'm an elitist. Uh-huh. <laughs> I will push, I will ask you a question that he asks in the piece, which is he writes, what piece of clothing or accessory would you give a model to mark her as young lady in 2023? That's a, a, a Manet piece that he was referring to that was like the quintessential young lady in 1886. He writes, a titanium cased iPhone is all that comes to my mind. And even that hasn't changed its appearance in mu- its appearance much in a decade. And I kind of agree with that. Like, I don't fashion wise and he also describes people watching in the museum um and he was saying people wearing skinny jeans of the 2000s or high-waisted jeans of the 90s and i feel like and i personally feel like you know fashion is just so iterative or it's just like going through a cycle we're just seeing the same things like the same things i was wearing in the early 2000s of just like wearing you know those things are out coming out again and that's all everyone's wearing it doesn't feel there is not a newness like i keep waiting you know i'm waiting for like you know the scenes in the hunger games where they go to the fancy 
fancy part of the country, whatever the district <laughs> that is. Yeah, 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 yeah. The capital. That's the capital. The capital. The capital. Right. I'm expect. Like I'm like. When are we all wearing ball gowns at 9 a.m. and blue hair? You know what uh-huh. I mean. Like that's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for the Hunger Games vision of the future to like take over our fashion. Um, something that just feels wild, and we're not doing it. We're just in yoga pants. We're fucking a decade. We're fucking. two decades of yoga pants and I can't take it anymore like can we please (laughs) and so there is some like what would you what would you say defines us for fashion but again when you look at just on the fashion level when you look at those you know the Renoirs it's not like they were wearing anything that was a radical innovative departure either and right like it was just more like ooh women get to wear pants like it wasn't Right. It was the it was the sort of no, but think about it. It was like the social evolution of like who was allowed to do what in what clothes. It wasn't like at some point, I guess, pants were an innovation, too. But that I don't know that date. But you get my point. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and so and I don't know if we if you and I were those people, y'all editors note, Nagin actually isn't a fancy elitist. If she really was, (laughs) she'd be like um, quoting some like. Hit Kittier that just was on the right, scenes which of I Parish do. Fashion Week yeah, and be yeah. like, here's the innovation. And here and she'd go into some like Meryl Streep Devil Wears Prada monologue about how that, you know, metal bustier from, yeah. you know, whoever, right, is making its way down to a new belt buckle. So I don't fucking know. But I also do think, I guess my biggest takeaway when I read it was what I started with, which is, look, we're having this conversation alongside of how many wars are now brewing uh, or active, you know, the planet is um, clearly dying. Need some help. Need some help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's not forget the pandemic. Let's not forget the fact that, you know, like yawning economic inequality, um, people kind of suffering and yet self-soothing and checking out with their devices and their TVs and their streaming and whatever. So, there is maybe something to be said for if we go like back to basics, Maslow hierarchy of needs here that like we're not able to focus on our elite fancy cultural creations because, right, we're trying to survive. I mean, to honestly, the artists who I, when we talk about art, art, like pedestal mm-hmm. art, fancy art, right. the artists who I am paying the most attention to and frankly, who are getting the most, I think, who are getting the most cachet and sort of... um Uh, energy right now are the artists who are responding to the political, cultural, and environmental moment we're in. They're not not creating art for art's sake because art for art's sake right now feels like a luxury. And so the art itself, whether we're talking writing or painting or sculpture or whatever, feels, may feel less innovative because it's not imagining some future or it's not taking the luxury of like, oh, let me just play over here. Right. It is it is urgent. It is of the moment. It is reactive. It is soothing of this moment or something. It's commentary on this moment um, or trying to be a portal out of this moment. But it maybe doesn't feel that. I don't know. Revolutionary. Revolution or or uh, 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 outside of the moment. Because the moment is so all encompassing and defining when we're in a moment of kind of human crisis. Well, can I, I thought that was, I I think this, first of all, who out there wants to transcribe what Sally just said? Cause that should be the editor's letter to the times for that piece. Um, I think you're, I mean, I think that was beautifully said. I will say one thing, which is that there's something about also this moment that feels like we prize technological innovation more than we do artistic innovation. And so like I was talking, I was talking to a friend of mine. I was in San Francisco last week. Thanks to everyone who, who came out to see Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me in San Francisco. And we, and I, and I was re- remembering, you know, what my, my first, my first feature film in 2010 premiere had its west coast premiere whatever in san francisco <laughs> such and a, sorry such are a you fucking flex such a fucking flex <laughs> did you did, listeners did you all hear that my my first yes it was my first okay. feature film yeah go on go well on. it's i have sorry, others and so anyway yeah. okay i'm a dick but here's the deal when my first feature film premiered it, it, it on the West Coast. It, it it played. It opened in a theater in San Francisco, and I'm blanking on the name. And the, it, this theater was in in the Hate 
uh, and it was like a beloved theater. It had been the cine- beloved cinema, independent cinema. It was like sort of like the, you know, the like Angelica of San Francisco or whatever. People loved going to this place. And I mean, I loved having my movie there. It was such a fun time. Um, and and I was just, this, this one cinema has like a place in my heart. That place closed. And it closed because San Francisco became this, like a, a a place that a lot of tech people live and they start and they don't it's like tech is the art like it's not art is not the art and so um and so stuff like cinemas and theaters or whatever just like just don't have the same place in san francisco as they once were and i feel like the primacy of technology is like taken over um and that makes i guess that makes me sad and it also you know we're so obsessed with how we receive things we don't care about the quality of the thing we're receiving right so it's all about like how are you receiving a text in what platform how are you receiving Mm -hmm. video how are you receiving how you know and um how can you iterate on a video that you are receiving it's all about that that's the art and it's like that's not art that's actually technology and we just are just prizing technology now in a way um and i think it's cyclical i think we're gonna move away we're gonna i mean i i i increasingly care fucking way less and less and less about techno a new iphone i don't give a shit right like I don't care what are the new features it has. How much better does it need to be? I don't care. You know what I mean? It already does too much, you know? Um, so so I feel like it is a cycle. And I, hopefully the rest of the world will come on board with my feeling that the iPhone should not advance anymore. <laughs> and hopefully if Tim Cook is listening, if he's even the guy or Tim Apple, as he's known, um, maybe he can. If you're listening, I say you're good. You could just stop now. <laughs> and then focus on like make b- building great cinema Save and i would also say you know if you think of like i, I re because there was a similar piece like this several months ago about music if you like think about music the 70s the 80s the 90s they have a very distinct sound and then mm-hmm. it stops <laughs> like and then it's just like a mush of things you basically knew if you were around in the 70s 80s and 90s like if you're familiar with that those eras of music then the tw- then the 10s and the 20s are that you already know them you know um so that stuff does feel real stop and think like because you know i have a 15 year old right and incidentally she listens to like a lot of 70s and 80s and 90s music because she's awesome but when she (laughs) listens to new stuff i will i'll think like i'll try to listen with a will this become an iconic song yes yes And it's interesting. It is true. I would say less and less of it. Like just, and it's part of it is, I can't tell, I don't know enough to know, is that about the quality of the music, right? Like none of these songs are just truly great or, or these artists, or is it about the quantity of it? There's so friggin' much that like for a song to have become iconic in the eighties, it needed to be like the song everybody was talking about for like, you know, more than a week. I don't know if that happens as much anymore. And so yeah. it could also be that it's just, you know, that part of what could be true. I agree with everything you said about technology and all the sort of AI art now, air quotes, uh, it right. is part of that. Um, but it also could be true that there's just so much, so much content that even if there are some gems in there, we don't notice We're them missing in the same them. way because yeah. they're just buried under mountains of crap crap or or there's enough other kind of good stuff you know that it's that nothing right. is like jumps out um i don't know i don't know man yeah it's We're, like i'm a also not we... smart enough for this conversation <laughs> no this is great i mean i feel like we need a sort of barbenheimer moment for like a playlist you know what i mean because mm. otherwise it's not gonna you're right it's just not gonna rise to the top we're not gonna notice it unless there's some specific thing and i think barbenheimer will go in the history books of cinema but mm-hmm. only because of this thing that happened around its marketing you know what right. i mean not necessarily because of like it's quality like it's not gonna, and like yeah. and, and look I've, i saw both movies i thought they were both like great movies you know what i mean it's so but i, I but haven't I'm, seen but oppenheimer I'm, yet don't ruin the ending for me <laughs> i think i talked about it in the show what but happens? i got 
I got, uh, well, what happened to Nagin Farsad was I got stressed the fuck out, but you go enjoy, and uh, Ooh, but just yeah. go into it with some breathing techniques. Or some beta blockers. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Cool, cool. I do wish I was like a little stoned having watched it. Maybe I would have would have calmed, it would have been my calmer I think experience. stoned would make it worse. I don't know. I, I know, seen the like film, it could have turned into, yes, the history, no. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's not right. Maybe that's not right. Maybe Stone isn't right. Um, um, well, okay. folks, that we did it. We talked about whether or not this entire century's art is fucking worth it at all. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> I was so pissed reading this piece because I was like, motherfucker, I'm creating shit in this century. So you're just like, this whole century is done, I guess. Like, and I still have to make shit in it and it doesn't matter because it's just not ever going to be noteworthy like compared to uh things of the past no no. he's just challenging you to make (laughs) that thing that will endure right and you know what folks are you taking the challenge let's all take the like what if what if uh yeah it's a in in 50 years from now people are going to be talking about fake the nation No, but they're gonna talk about what is it? Your fifth feature film, right? right yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there you go. There you go. Uh, well, I folks, let me know what you think. No right, um, check out this piece and let me know if it's chokingly elitist, as it was described. <laughs> what asshole I think, said that? <laughs> I think that was the best description of anything I've ever heard. Um, I'm taking that with me. That's that's going in the diary. Um, and folks, uh, that is the end of the show. And I. Um, I just want to thank Sally Cohen, Sally Cohen, and Sally Cohen for being on the show. <laughs> Our many panelists who filled out this conversation. Um, such a fantastic time. And I knew, I was like, well, if it was going to be anyone who had to be, to, to just talk to me alone, it would, Sally, Sally's the one that could handle it. Um, Am so, I the only Sally, person to ever do this? Is this like, no, do you, I get You know who else has done it? Oh, I think who? you would appreciate who else has done it. Um, Ophira Eisenberg. Okay. And okay. uh and David Cross. I mean, I feel like I'm in good company here. <laughs> You're in a tremendous company. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You're now I would like who's... a t-shirt that says third time one timer or something like that. <laughs> Who's yeah? No, you're gonna. We're gonna get you a T-shirt that's because now you're part of the chokingly elite. <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, we can sell those bumper stickers and do very well. Absolutely, everyone in Pennsylvania will have it on their car. <laughs> um, Sally, where do people find you and all the wonderful things that you do? Oh, they find me at Sally Cohn, K O H N. Um, folks, uh, please follow everything that she does because it's so fantastic. And you know where to find me in all things that I do. And um, don't forget uh, The Golden Bachelor every other Friday. And um, you can find me. I have dates in Philadelphia. I have dates in D.C. I'm going to be at the Kennedy Center. And I'm going to be um, in Virginia. So please um, look at the dates at naginfarsad.com. I cannot wait to see you. It's so great to see Fake the Nation listeners in the wild. Sometimes they wear their T-shirt. I just, my heart fills um, with such joy when I see Fake Nation listeners in the wild. It's always great to see you guys. I'm going to be doing my hour in Reston, Virginia. So um, definitely look up that date. Um, all right. And that, uh, oh, and I want to thank everyone who makes the show a possibility. That's our wonderful producer, Andrew McGuire. Our fantastic theme music was written by Gobby Alter. And thanks to everyone at HeadGum for making the show a possibility. If you have any thoughts, you can reach us at fakethenationpodcast at gmail.com. And again, go to patreon.com slash Farsad to support the show and otherwise we will be back in your earballs next week that was a headgum podcast